0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week concludes our Best of the Year specials. In the second program, we represent the best conversations and performances from the fall and winter of 2019. We'll be back with all new shows next week. Happy holidays from all of us at Lumpen Radio to all of you. I-94 chatted with author T. Krulos about apocalyptic culture and the prepper's phenomenon. Tracing a line from America's earliest religious beginning, Krulos shows how end-time thinking has long captivated our culture. Krulos shows how the Preppers movement, which can seem sensible on its surface, actually hides a dark side. I-94, Lumpin's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m.
1: We are joined by Mr. T. Krulos. T, are you with us?
2: Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm
1: great. Thanks so much for making the time this morning to chat with us about your new book.
2: Oh, I'm glad to be here.
1: So Apocalypse Any Day Now is a collection of, is it fair for me to call them short essays about uh, the kind of apocalypse culture that currently exists in America? Because you don't talk just about preppers, or at least what we think of preppers. You you do go to other groups, and you do have kind of a fairly uh, long history of how the apocalyptic movement has had actually long roots in America.
2: Yeah, um, you're exactly right. It is more of essays. Uh, Preppers made it into the subtitle, because I think that's a real eye-grabbing word, Um, and I do talk to preppers, but kind of the loose theme is any sort of group or social idea that has something to do with the end of the world.
1: Now why do you think, I mean apocalyptic thinking as you, as you point out has existed in this country almost since the country's inception. There are, there are religious roots to it. There are people that have predicted the end times using the Bible uh, and there have been a number of high profile incidents of, of people trying to bring about uh, doomsday or or in fact uh, bringing doomsday to their followers such as the Heaven's Gate people. Why do you think this is such a um, an idea with such longevity in this country? It's
2: this just- something that's like really part of our DNA we have like this kind of long violent history and it seems like the you know the end of the world is right around the corner all the time. feels like it sort of feels like things are always getting worse and that you know, doomsday is coming. so but yeah it has a very long history um, Towards the beginning of the book I, ta- I tell the story of Father Miller and his followers the Millerites,
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want Number to tell was. us a little bit about the Millerites, tea? Uh, I, yeah. I had never heard of them, and I found that, uh, you know, it's at the beginning of the book, quite fascinating. Can you share about what the Millerites were and what they did?
2: Yeah, so um, this started in New England uh, in the 1800s, and Father Miller was a pretty simple farmer, but um, he became this religious leader with a huge following. And um, through studying other works, he came up with this uh, end date time, um, and when that date passed, he he came up with another end date time, and this time around, people were uh, believed him very much. So, I mean, if you can imagine this, it was just, there was a large group of people who really thought the world was ending. So, a lot of them sold all of their possessions. Um, they stopped tending to their crops. Uh, They stopped going to school and stuff like that. And when that date rolled around, it was October 1843, uh, people would stand on the the roofs of their houses, um, wanting to be closer to Jesus as he descended from the sky.
3: That's a good place to be if you want to be close to Jesus. (laughs) Right up there on the roof.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, And the day became known as the Great Disappointment because... um, Nothing happened. But it's sort of a a story that repeats itself over and over again. People are always predicting a specific date that the the rapture is going to happen or the apocalypse.
3: And Uh, it it hasn't happened yet. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Some of these uh, people, I was going to say guys, mostly men. I I know there was one woman you discussed, but they use these um, somewhat complicated formulas based on biblical verse... This number equals that number. Daniel nine was a was the one mentioned in the book, I think.
2: Yeah, Daniel nine is the one um, where they talk about seven sevens of seven sevens, and it's kind of vague as to what that might mean. So, yeah, it's
4: a little vague.
2: (laughs) Maybe Daniel just had a stutter. Maybe Daniel did have a stutter. Yeah, Yeah. But people really bust out uh, the extra-large chalkboard to try to do the math on that one. And it, you know, led to interpretations that these sevens mean 700 years, or maybe they mean seven, 700 years. So uh, everyone tries to tackle that math problem and comes up with different dates.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned the Millerites. Uh, And, of course, I think the the person Jeremy was referring to is a young woman, uh, I believe her name was Rachel, and she predicted the end of the world in, t- what, 2016 or 2017? Yeah, it was a recent one. It was a more recent one. W- one of the things that fascinated me about that kind of history of our culture was that the Millerites and, and others came out of a large, uh, very agrarian relig- set of religious movements that happened in America in the 1800s. Uh, the Mormon Church, the Church of Latter-day Saints, came out of this, the Transcendentalist movement. Um, and up until, you know... Fairly recently, you could see Dr. Gene Scott on religious broadcasting in America. He, he's passed away, but he did pyramid numerology right on the air with the giant chalkboard you're talking about. So there, there, was, there's more than just apocalypse going on here. There seems to be something in the very American soil that seems to embrace um, these kind of fairly out there largely unsupported ideas, as long as they're based on, on some sort of biblical math. And I wondered if you could, in your, in your study and, and you, in talking with these people, was there a reason why that was so attractive? Was it because they were deeply religious people, or, or was it because it, it helped them in a sense make sense of what seems to be a chaotic world? You know, you said at the start that it does seem to to many people like the society is getting worse as we go on. Things are getting harder for people. Was was that a way that people used to make sense of things, and and as a result, then they felt kind of overconfident to choose an end of the world day?
2: Yeah, and I mean, one of the great things you know about America, of course, is uh, there's this American dream of having religious freedom. So um, you can create any religion you want, you know, and uh, it's. Still, sort of a new place where you can uh, try out your new religion and find followers. Um, so, I think that's, you know, from the beginning, that was a, a very American dream. And um, I think people feel very excited if they feel that they could be like a new prophet that is figuring out these end time dates. Um, you know, so. Well, the the, the the book starts out with the, these religious prophecies, but you know, it quickly goes into other doomsday scenarios, and, and I think one of the first ones was the artificial superintelligence takeover. Mm-hmm. And uh, you fooled me on that chapter with Rose. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about Rose, who she is, was, and uh, maybe describe some of the phys- physical interactions? Because I... I I couldn't quite picture you guys face-to-face. Did she have a face? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, Rose, um, artificial superintelligence is something that people are concerned about because the technology on it is evolving pretty fast. It's not there yet, but I start off this chapter uh, with Rose. I guess this is a spoiler, maybe. But um, I'm having what well, would seem to be a, a chat with a friend, you know, um, at this a normal conversation. But Rose is an award-winning chatbot, so um, she was entered into a contest called the Turing Contest, um, where they try to see how long a chatbot can fool a person before the person realizes that it's not making sense in this robot. Um, so, uh, we have a conversation, and yeah, there's, there's, it's just a, a computer screen, there's a little illustration of her, you know. Um, but other than that, it's just a, a computer program. Gotcha. But the, the, the problem is that super intelli- artificial superintelligence is evolving so quickly that it's doing things like writing its own language to communicate with other computers that we don't understand. Um, I talked to someone from the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. I love that organization name. That's pretty great. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: and he he gave me the example of, let's say you have a super intelligent computer and you're playing chess, and the computer decides that the best way to win the game is to kill you. You know, it doesn't have like a moral compass, so. Uh, The threat is, you know, what computers are going to figure out on their
3: own. It's almost like a a Westworld scenario. I wanted to ask you um, when you were, uh, when you were. I I know you have a book coming out from Feral House, and and we're all big fans. And um, did you ever uh, see paraphrase uh, Apocalypse Culture One and Two? Jamie and I were talking about. We talk about on the show a lot how in the '90s, like publishers like feral house and others and and all the zines and everything you know we got a lot of our information back then from from those type of publishers because we didn't have the web and I, I was wondering if that had any influence on you because this kind of this to me seems like a little bit like a continuation of those uh, those collections
2: yeah i was absolutely the same way um you know i was in my 20s before well the internet existed but i wasn't using it so um a lot of books and zines, um, and yeah, uh, I I did see the apocalypse culture um, books
1: a long time ago. So yeah, the Lumpanics catalog was a was a key a key touchstone for anybody who was interested in in that kind of culture.
3: And I'm just gonna mention one guy's name. If you wanna read about an absolute whack job, uh check out Bo Gritz G R. I T Z. He was actually uh uh, at that comp- what was that compound Ruby Ridge? When they, uh, oh right, yeah, he was out there running around, and his uh, he was a colonel, and he he was out running around with his. Was he a Kentucky Colonel? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think he was actually like a, a full-on military colonel, but he was running around with his American flag, you know, protesting oh, the you. government. But,
1: well, we, we have some segments uh, from T's book, and I want to play one of them because it, it tees up some questions that I'm, I'm going to have for him. So as always, our readings are done by uh, Ms. Shanna Van Volt. And today's music is provided, of course, by International Anthem. It is Crush Love. But this is a selection from Apocalypse Any Day Now by T. Krulos. We'll be back in a couple minutes after this reading.
0: It used to be the number one American ideal was depending on yourself and not other people, James told me. I'd met up with him and his friend and prepper ally, Doug, at a cafe in Sheboygan, Wisconsin called Paradigm Coffee and Music. They agreed to talk to me about the prepping lifestyle, but, like most preppers, were extremely secretive, so they asked that I give them aliases and keep some other details off the record. Sheboygan is a city of just under 50,000 people and sits on Lake Michigan and is known as the bratwurst capital of the world and also the city of cheese, chairs, children, and churches. James had responded after I had put a message in a Facebook group called Wisconsin Preppers. They told me what the world was going to be like when the SHTF, when the SHTF, whatever it might be, nuclear attack, a breakdown of society, civil war, natural disaster, or whatever else, society will break down. There's going to be two groups, Doug explained, those who have and those who have not. Yep, and those that don't have are going to try and take from those who do, James added. You've got to be ready to defend what you have or you lose it all. People are going to die of starvation, disease, they're going to be killed for what they have. There's a can of beans, you can get killed over that if someone's starving. To better their odds of survival, preppers develop bug out plans for winning the SHTF. The plan will lead them from their homes to a shelter located in a remote area. This might be an underground bunker, an isolated cabin or farm, anywhere that gets away from the dangers of burning civilization. The city is not where you want to be, James told me. James and Doug are part of a small group of tight-knit families who have united to come up with contingencies for different SHTF scenarios. They have items stocked and plan to all bug out to a location where they can use their combined skills and resources to survive. They're extremely secretive about where that location is. we're not going to tell you where. It's not in town. We have multiple routes to get there, we have different ways of communicating, not just a smartphone that everyone carries, Doug explained. The radios that I have are in a metal box that's insulated with anti-static material. And it's grounded so you can shock it all day long and our radios are going to be fine. Plus, we speak in code and our channels are in code. It's how we've practiced things. When it's clear that the S has HTF, Doug and James will load up their vehicles with supplies and grab bug-out bags, backpack stuffed with emergency food rations, medical supplies, tools, and other items helpful for survival. Me and the members mapped out the city so we know how to get from point A to point B because the city is very easy to cut off, James said of the group's bug-out planning. They can cut the city in half in five minutes. There's mapped out routes where we can get around any roadblock. Once they arrive with their families, they'll be joined by other members of the group and James and Doug are both confident it's a group of survivors. Every single person in our group has at least one member that's had one or multiple combat tours. I specialize in close quarter hand-to-hand combat," Doug said. I was in the infantry, James added. Another guy was in the Marines. Another was an army officer. A large contingency of preppers have military experience. All the preppers I know are not anti-government. We're not forming a militia. We're just taking care of each other, James said. So if something does happen, we're going to have a chance to survive. Chuck Mertz spoke with Brian Meyer live from Sao Paulo about the fires ravaging the Amazon. Meyer discusses Brazil's right-wing government, how the forests went up in smoke, and what can be done about this looming environmental disaster. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
5: But here to tell us what the U.S. media is getting wrong about Brazil now or is just completely ignoring editor and correspondent brian muir edited and contributed to the collection year of lead washington wall street and the new imperialism in brazil which is the second volume in the series dispatches from a coup in progress welcome back to this is hell brian
6: hey chuck how you doing it's nice to be back on i see you're going out with michael brooks this weekend i had a couple with him in brooklyn last month when I was up in the U.S., and he's a great guy.
5: All right, good, because I'm still kind of, I I just don't like doing personal appearances because I feel like I'm kind of... Mobbed by paparazzi? No, pimping myself out. I just don't want to do that, you know? I just don't want to do that, man. It was my whole problem. Like, I'd like to make money. But I don't want to make money. And I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me, Brian. Let's start with uh, your latest article of Brazil Wire. The Day the Sky Went Out. You write on Monday, August 19th, that's this week, you left your home on the north side of Sao Paulo at 2 p.m. and headed toward the Tietê bus station. I was picking up a friend arriving from Rio, and the bus was late, so at around 3.15, I stepped out of the terminal and looking for a cheaper cup of coffee, and all the streetlights were on. And you asked, was I dreaming? Instead, what you saw, all the streetlights were on. You said a freak incident caused by smoke from out-of-control forest fires burning in thousands of points across the country. And Satellite photos were showing that a lot of this was coming from the Amazon rainforest. How do profiteers benefit from the burning of the Amazon rainforest, and would this burning be taking place if Dilma or Lula was still in office?
6: Well, you've said a lot of things at uh, at once. Just to start off, that was really, um, you know, pretty freaky to just be in a city of 20, you know, 24 million people or something, a huge city, and just see everything go black at three in the afternoon. I'm still and then like it just seemed weird. I couldn't didn't know what it was. And I went out drinking drinking with a couple of friends and it was just like, it seemed really clammy out. And as I got home, I felt no, that was smoke from the Amazon jungle, which is like a thousand miles away. Okay. It was like, it was like, you know, I, I felt like the woman in that Lars von Trier movie, what is it? Melancholia or something almost, you know, like what the hell is going on? How could, how could the city get dark from smoke a thousand miles away. So you would never oh, seen anything even you'd
5: never seen anything even close to this before in your life?
6: No, I mean I I lived up near the Amazon for eight years, like on the entryway to the Amazon, Sao Luis Maranhão, in a state, half of the states like in the legal Amazon region, and the other half is pre Amazon. And I've seen all kinds of forests burning. I used to see like on the n- local news that this or that little town in the countryside was got dark in the afternoon because of forest fires nearby. But I've, I've never seen, this is a th- I mean, imagine like if Chicago just got dark at three in the afternoon because there were fires burning in Louisiana how much smoke would that have to be? And it wasn't like one little cloud that drifted you know, down or something, it was a continuous smoke cloud stretching from the Amazon jungle down south over Sao Paulo. So how
5: have Brazilians reacted to the burning of the rainforest? Do they, do they have nas- national pride in the forest or do those on the right simply not care about the forests and deny the impact of the burning of the forest <coughs> on the climate and Brazil's environment?
6: Well, it's, you know, first of all, what drives this all is international capitalism. You know, it's luxury products going up to the north, like beef, soy, you know, and things like that, have, that have, and, and minerals, you know, like gold and things like that, aluminum, uh, alumina, which is a prime ingredient in aluminum, nickel, all this stuff that's used up in the rich countries in the north comes from the Amazon, you know, like I remember in the 80s when I worked at Greenpeace, McDonald's, I believe, was still buying a lot of its beef from the Amazon. So, you know, they helped develop the beef market in that region. And it was the World Bank that first convinced the Brazilian government that they should incorporate destroying the Amazon rainforest into the national development plan. So basically, like in the 60s, early 70s, during the military dictatorship, the World Bank sent a bunch of technocrats down and convinced them that they should rip down the forest in the state of Rondonia, and relocate a lot of poor, um, you know, like landless peasants from the impoverished northeast to that state and use it to to raise cattle and things like that. And, that, you know, that's what they did. And from that point forwards, destroying the Amazon was like part of the, a controlled destruction which spun really heavily out of control in the first couple of decades. You know, uh, that was like part of the development plan. And it wasn't until... Um really, you know, like Chico Mendes in the 80s, who was killed, uh, and his second-in-command, Marina Silva, who ended up working as Lula's uh, national minister of the environment. You know, you saw inklings of this change of mindset during the end of Fernando Henrique Cardoso's presidency. But it was really the Lula administration that started... Uh, making the argument that it would be better for Brazil's development to preserve the Amazon rainforest than to destroy it. And so this is why, and this is something you're not seeing at all, you know, on the, uh, in The Guardian, for example. I, mean, I, I remember when Dilma Rousseff was thrown out of office, Jonathan Watson, The Guardian, said, well, the PT's record on the environment was horrible. But Michelle Temer is appointing Sarnay Filho, who's a veteran environmentalist, and that could be a good sign of this all. You know, there's a ridiculous thing to say from him. The Sarnay family deforested the entire state of Maranhão, where I lived for eight years. And it's, uh, but uh, there was a report given to the United Nations in 2014 called Deforestation Success Stories okay, by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And chapter two of this document is entitled Brazil, the World's Biggest Reductions in Deforestation and Emissions. Okay. And this is like an actual like UN report that was generated by this Union of Concerned Sciences, whatever. But they detail exactly what happened, you know. And during the Lula years, they cut, they didn't eliminate deforestation, but they reduced the level of deforestation by 84%. They had the largest reduction in deforestation and carbon emissions in the world at that time. They met their um, uh, they met their carbon emission uh twenty twenty u n carbon emissions um goals like nine years early you know and and most of the reduction in carbon emissions was through this massive reduction in deforestation you know and so that was all just, that's all just completely been undone in the last two years, three years since the coup, four, no, sorry, three, whatever, three years since 2016. That's all been undone. And we see now that, you know, Bolsonaro came into power, sending out all these signals to the ranchers and the miners, you know, the, the soy farmers and everybody who's interested in ripping down rainforests, that he wasn't going to punish them. He cut the budget for the governmental agency fighting global warming by 95%. He butchered all of the regulatory agencies protecting against um, deforestation on indigenous reservations. He's basically told people that he's not gonna punish them if they go in and log on indigenous reservations and in national parks and things like that. So we have now a situation where in the first six months of his uh, reign, 20,000 illegal gold miners have moved into this huge Yanomami indigenous reservation near the Pico de Neblina National Park on the border with Amazonas and Horaima, and they're dumping all this mercury into the rivers, and all of these indigenous people are dying of diarrhea right now from drinking this river water. All the fish are dying. Okay. So then that, that's just like one example. The level of deforestation has gone up. in the first six months of this year. So that's why we have a 1,000-mile-long cloud of smoke. (laughs) Size
7: matters, size
3: matters, with Kyle Seisminkowski.
8: Jesus
9: Kyle, I always thought your what? homeless bum look was an affectation. What are you talking about, Jess? Well, you're pushing a full shopping cart of trash down the middle of Morgan Street in a snowstorm. No, 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 hold on a 2nd There's got to be some place you can go. Do libraries still exist? This is no shopping cart. This is my chariot, and with a little help. It'll carry me to race victory. I hope I don't understand what you meant by that. You haven't heard
5: of the Bridgeport I-did-a-Nimrod thingy? It's huge.
9: The Iditarod? Oh, there is no way that you or that shopping cart are making it to a dog race in Alaska. Yeah, We got one right here in Bridgeport. Been running it every winter since the 30s. I am finding this difficult to believe. Oh, you find it difficult to believe. Well now, let me tell you something. I gotta go hide stuff for Half Price at Unique on Monday right now, so I don't have time for your crazy today. Hold on a sec. There's a lot of history and probably some safety concerns, but the main point is the first prize is 500 simoleons. Wow, I cannot wait to support this proud local tradition. Where do we start? First, we gotta find some dogs. Once we got those, we can enter the race. Piece of cake. I gotta ask you, what the truck is this? Oh, it's the new dog yoga session over at the boathouse. Wait a sec, dog yoga? Yoga, it's a culturally appropriated stretching thing that rich white people do. Ah, I see, yes. Uh, you do not, the glass is all covered in steam. So this is
3: dog exercise? Why don't they just give them a rope and let them uh, run around? I'm not gonna
9: bust the boathouse on their scam. There's tons of new transplants from the north side who love stretchy pants and taking Instagram stories of their dogs. They're to be printing money up in here. Uh, yeah, uh, it also pretty, makes it uh, super easy for us to know. grab a bunch of dogs. Hmm. I see some huskies over there. That's a snow type dog. You grab the big white ones, I'll grab these two little tan guys. No corgis, Kyle, they can't pull Jack let go ahead and get this. Hurry up, Jess. I think we got made. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go, let's go Two let's go. minutes, sir. Jess, come, come on. on. Quick, into the shopping cart. Come on. Mike. Hardly a Cadillac here, Kyle. Yeah, I couldn't get one of
10: those
3: nice wheelchairs with the locks on them. Whoa! Where are we going? Halstead, Jess. We're going to Halstead. That's where the start of the races is. wow laugh, laugh, do you Oh snap!
9: I see the yogurt people with the pitchfork. Mush! Mush! Uh, what does that even
1: mean, Jack? Oh, hold on God. to the dang dogs! Good morning, race fans. I'm walking up the seventy-sixth Bridgeport Iditarod. Stretching from Cermak all the way to back of the yards. It's a beautiful day for a dog race. <laughs> and we're almost set to start this. Wait, what's this? What's this? I see a late entrance. I think in what appears to be a shopping cart being chased by a mob in Lululemon. Well, it takes all types. And they're off! Ah!
9: Oh, um, We're just past the renovations. Oh, I think I'm going to be
2: sick just because is out of control.
9: Oh, 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 well, oh, just oh, swallow
2: oh, it, Kyle. Oh, 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 we're almost going to win Jess. this thing.
5: The Limburger ain't sitting too so good. Limburger never
4: oh, sits good. It's know, basically
1: that. on the oh, package. was oh, oh.
5: <laughs> this
1: just over the line of what appears to be a new record time. It looks like an old man in a shopping cart with a young girl in a fur coat. Yes, two bums have won the Bridgeport. Hey,
9: era. you take that back, you jag. I'm only bum adjacent. Yes, we won. We won 500 Somalians. We did. We won. Yeah, that's my dog. Someone arrest these guys. They stole my Fifi. I'm just going to go ahead and take this check. Yoink! Kyle! Scatter! Scatter! Serpentine! Hold on, wait. Yes. Okay, bye!
0: Mario Smith, chatted with Aaron Cohen, author of Move On Up, about the roots of the Chicago sound. Cohen explains how Chicago's R&B scene was rooted in the Black Power movement, how the sound had an international impact, and why Chicago's music remains so popular in the north of England. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m.
7: I am very happy to have my friend Aaron Cohen. Aaron Cohen is the author of a new book on Curtis Mayfield, yeah, more more on Chicago music than just Curtis, but it's called "Move On Up: Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power." Uh, Aaron covers the arts for numerous publications and teaches English, journalism, and humanities at City Colleges of Chicago. He is also the author of the book "Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace," and he joins us live in studio today. Mario, what's up, man, mm-hmm. what's up?
4: Thank you so much for having me in. Aaron this Cohen. is great to be here. Such it's good
7: to, to have you here. I'm really glad that uh, that you're here and. Um, this is uh, this is really really a good time uh, to be talking about this book. Was at a big press conference this morning about the uh, a year in music Chicago twenty twenty, um, and and we have a, a living testament, a living document about Chicago music. Uh, before we go too far into the book, uh, what was the impetus of writing this book? Well, I always felt that.
4: <clears throat> As a writer, I wanted to fill gaps, and I felt that the connections among Chicago soul music, R&B, the political, cultural changes, a book combining all of those had not been written. So I thought I should write it. Mm -hmm. As well, I wanted to also talk about what made the music sound so distinctive, all of the factors that went into that and i wanted to talk about how many of the musicians became change agents themselves sometimes through direct political action like jerry butler Mm -hmm. singer who became a cook county commissioner Mm -hmm. sometimes it was just through people asserting their own identity sometimes it was people like curtis mayfield writing song lyrics that were part of the civil rights movement other times it was musicians taking ownership of themselves as much as they could whether it was in the
7: studio or owning the studio, yeah. Um, we talk about the Chicago sound. It is like an albatross in some ways because people are still trying to figure out what that really means. It means different things in different genres of music. The Chicago sound is house music. The Chicago sound could be hip hop. It could be blues, most definitely. Um, but when I think about it, I think about R and B and 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 particularly the the R and B rhythm and blues from the mid. 50s to like the mid 80s maybe just that that driving pulsating sound it's curtis it's donny hathaway although not so much anchored in chicago but part of that sound it's charles stepney and all the work he did what the when 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 someone presents that to you like what is the chicago sound what is your answer to that my answer to that is
4: that to me what defines the Chicago sound is not as interesting as who were the Chicago sound makers. Mm. Because when you talk about that period of Chicago R&B music, very diverse. Mm -hmm. We were just listening to Rotary Connections, I'm the Black Gold of the Sun, Mm -hmm. Curtis Mayfield's Freddy's Dead. Mm -hmm. Those are very different songs, very much Chicago the Lights mm-hmm. couldn't get more chicago than them with mm-hmm. their name absolutely they came out of a catholic church background and they brought that to their music which is very different than the sanctified singers like say someone like otis clay mm-hmm. who came out of a very different religious experience who was very different than terry collier who would sing folk and combine that with jazz combine that with soul combine that with the lessons he learned from Catholic education. Hmm. So it was very mixed. Patty Drew from Evanston sounded Mm -hmm. very different than Ruby Andrews. So it's just such an amazing amount of diversity. That's something I wanted to highlight was that also, too, through diversity is strength. And one of the reasons why I talk about cultural power is because of this diversity helps create such power.
0: (laughs) ¶¶ Nancy Clem spoke with mycologist Willoughby Arevalo about field identification and mushroom hunting. Arevalo discussed DIY cultivation and mushroom cuisine and how fungi invisibly shape the world around us. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 5.
9: What I'd like to start with is your origin story as a mycologist, because you started as a very young person, um, realizing that you had some passionate interest in... Fungi. So I'd like you to introduce yourself that way, as a child discovering fungi. Thank (laughs) you.
8: So I was growing up in the Coast Redwood ecosystem of Humboldt County, California, Uh on the North Coast, and in a small town called Arcata. And my parents and I lived in a house with a backyard that bordered the Arcata community forest, which is a pretty good-sized piece of land that's uh, publicly owned by the municipality. And so we had no fence there, and I was just um, exploring the forest a lot. Mm -hmm. And around age four, according to my parents, was when I started to really see see the mushrooms and be interested in them. And I always loved to cook. My parents had me peeling garlic from when I was a year old and doing other things in the kitchen. I always loved to eat, and I always loved eating mushrooms. <laughs> and I was raised vegetarian also. And um, when I was, I think, six years old, my dad had a roommate who was taking the fleshy fungi uh, field identification course at Humboldt State University. And so he was bringing home specimens and identifying them. And that was great fun for me. And I started learning some mushroom names. I started getting some mushroom books of my own and getting really curious, even more curious. And a lot of kids, um, and I think particularly in our culture, um, there's a conditioning towards boys having this um, type of demonstrative knowledge of like dinosaur names, things like that, learning these, these kind of abstract names and things like that. I'm pretty into that and uh, carried kind of straight from dinosaurs into mushrooms, realizing <laughs> that dinosaurs were a thing of the past and mushrooms were right here with me. And so my dad started bringing me to Humboldt Bay Mycological Society meetings when I was nine and um just based on my interest not his although he was somewhat interested too and I didn't really stick with it for that long because let's face it the mycological society's system isn't that designed for kids it's <laughs> mostly people that are retired <laughs> and and Uh, Although that's starting to shift towards a younger demographic now, also coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, that's when some knowledge started to really sink in. And I started um, really learning some things and getting out in the field with people who knew a lot. And then um, there's this beautiful moment that happened when I was on a foray with them at Big Lagoon which is one of my old favorite spots um, where I can find edible mushrooms practically any day of the year. I've never come back with an empty basket from that place. It's right on the coast, it's super foggy, sickness-dominant forest that's about 60 years old. And, and Dave, Dr. David Largent pointed the ground at this mushroom and said, Willoughby, what's this mushroom? But tell me without looking at the underside of it. And I looked, I was thinking, scratched my head a little. And I said, Hmm, is that a hedgehog? And it was, and I still go back to pick that same patch. Uh, Almost 30 years later, I, I still have a relationship with that particular mycelium, which is pretty sweet that, um, I'm able to kind of build these relationships with certain fungi over time. And, um, You know, I always say hi when I visit. Sometimes it takes um... some. Anyway. uh,
9: You you probably take your daughter there now, too, don't you?
8: I do, and I asked her the same question. (laughs) She was only two at the time, or maybe not even two, and she didn't quite get it. But I think next time I bring her to that patch, she'll know. Right. (laughs) She's pretty good. I picked some King Boletes the other day um, in Quebec right now at um, my parents' house and they have a forest behind and the, it's actually going off with a lot of uh, King Boletes right now. Mm. And I brought a basket in the other day and i was like, Uma, what are these? She he took a, She asked me, what is it? And I was persistent and I didn't tell her and, and then she came out with it, King Bolete! She knew it. <laughs> Right on. <laughs> so, so then when I was about 13, I had learned enough from my self study that my parents trusted me to eat the mushrooms that I was bringing home. And that's around the time I found my first Chantra patch. Mm. And, uh, and so then I started getting more and more into it as I was actually getting to enjoy the fruits, the forest, in that way. And I, um, I really amped it up when I went to university in my hometown at Humboldt State University. And I got to take that same fleshy fungi course, although uh, with the newer professor, Terry Henkel, who's still there now. And I, my ID skills and ecological understanding of the fungi just skyrocketed from there I had a really good base of self-study and then into the academic state as an art major and Terry always kind of boasted about the art major who aced all the mycology classes but um (laughs) I guess I was cheating because I had been practicing already But then that's when I like really started eating mushrooms a lot and because most of my classmates weren't eating most of the mushrooms they were bringing in for ID, but I would eat practically anything that was edible. And so I'd bring home my (laughs) classmates' mushrooms and that fall I ate mushrooms every single day for a (laughs) hundred consecutive days. (laughs) Wild mushrooms. It was awesome. Oh, Wow. (laughs) And at last check, I've
0: eaten over 150 species. The cell phones tore the ceiling off Studio A with a searing John Daly session. This is a longer song off their last LP, No. It's called You Make Me Say No, engineered by Ari Shellist. Chuck Mertz spoke to Jason Pine about the use of meth in post-industrial America. Pine discusses a population of workers left behind by work, meth is an industrial poison in a long series of industrial poisons in our environment, and a way to be alive under a system that doesn't care about killing us. This is Hell airs twice a week, every Sunday and Thursday at 10.
5: What happens when the American dream is haunted by the nightmare of meth? How do skilled, well-paid industrial workers who are weekend DIY tinkers in their garage become meth lab cooks? Here to take us on a guided tour of the world of meth, professor of anthropology and media studies at Purchase College, State University of New York. Jason Pine is author of The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition. Welcome to This is Hell, Jason.
11: Thank you, and thanks so much for this invitation.
5: Jason also wrote the 2012 book, The Art of Making Do in Naples, which examines how underemployed aspiring singers become entangled with the Camorra, the region's powerful and volatile organized crime networks. I only mention that because that sounds like a fascinating book, Jason, and I'm very upset that I didn't know of that book when it came out because I would have definitely had you on our show. You write, while following the local news and chatting with students and people in town, one subject constantly circulated where you were teaching, and that was home meth labs. There was uh, talk of strange hoarding activity, peculiar shopping behaviors at Walmart and Walgreens, and suspicious gatherings and trash piles in the woods. There were reports of homes colonized by meth cooks while the owners were on vacation, bizarre property crimes, exploding trailers, and the horrid discovery of what had been in, hidden inside, emaciated toothless tweakers, stockpiled guns and ammunition, and abused children. There were many concerns among these rumors and truths. That drew my attention But what unsettled me most was the fact That so many people Were making meth Unnumbered cooks were transmuting ordinary Household products into an elixir That radically transformed the way People lived, worked, and died How obvious do you think it is To people working at Walmart That the people who are buying these household Products are buying them to make meth How obvious is the meth industry In counties like The uh, pseudonym name? that you give to this one St. Jude's County. How obvious is the meth industry?
11: Well, people get accustomed to the aesthetics, the appearance of people who are engaged in meth cooking, and they develop a sensibility where they can recognize the signs of what's going on. So it can be quite obvious. And there there are many signs. Yeah. So um,
5: why St. Jude? You write the stories I recount take place in a northeastern Missouri county I call St. Jude a pseudonym, the county that annually ranked first in the state for meth lab bus. Why was this the number one place in Missouri? I said earlier in the United States, that was a mistake on my part. In Missouri, why St. Jude? Why do you think that ended up being the number one county in Missouri with the most meth lab busts?
11: Well, the reasons are always multiple and complicated, and I can only conjecture based on what I've researched and read. Um, Initially, it was popular because of the landscape of poverty, of deindustrialization, although I prefer the term late industrialism. Because this is a place with an ongoing process of deindustrialization, whereas more metropolitan areas have replaced the industrial labor force with uh, other kinds of new economy forms of labor, like information, information-based information forms of labor. But in places like these, the, this is an ongoing process where there are still factories or that are operative or, or inoperative but still producing or have still left behind them the ecological injury of their operations and new jobs, new opportunities haven't come to replace them. So people are sort of left in the lurch. So this primes people for A DIY kind of sensibility. Already it exists in places like rural Missouri where people have a facility with uh, manual labor or fixing things or doing it yourself, homesteading, hunting, dressing your catch. And also a kind of familiarity with everyday household chemicals or at least what's more everyday in that region. So, people don't really shy away from those kinds of, um, those products. And then there are just many other reasons that concatenate with those to make this a possibility of a lot of meth production.
5: One One of the things I was thinking about during, I mean, not only when I was reading your book, but also just during your response, is that uh, it seems like what meth did was it filled an economic or an industrial vacuum. It filled an employment vacuum. It filled a financial vacuum for the area that it was what had been created because of the, uh, at least the slowing down, the ending of industrialization. Do you think that something like meth was inevitable when that new economy did not come about? Do you think that an illegal economy was unavoidable? avoidable and inevitable when we change from industrialization to this more service uh, information industry economy?
11: Yes, I wouldn't say inevitable, but I think the potential was very strong. I've seen this also in Naples, informal economies spring up to fill a gap when there's a need. And I think what was more, maybe not more, but equally important in this scene with meth cooking is that meth also provides a a physical embodied sense of hope, of energy, and a sense of being productive and useful and capable, which is also an important lack that people experience when they're underemployed or unemployed, marginalized.
5: Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating things I found in your book is how meth would give people hope, meth would give people freedom. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But you write that St. Jude held the national record for meth lab bus for most of two decades, but these statistics do not necessarily justify the county's identity as the meth capital of the United States. The statistics gloss over the complexities of the political and economic geography that makes measuring meth lab incidents possible or desirable in any given county or state, rather than revealing the extraordinariness of one area of the United States. States. The statistics obscure the Intricacies of narco capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests, and of narco politics, how concerns about drugs are woven into forms of governance, particularly policing. And I don't think these are two terms that people come in contact with or consider very much. So, narco capitalism, how drugs are entangled with broader economic interests. I'm familiar with an economically depressed area that prior to marijuana becoming legalized had a very large number of marijuana home growers. I was told by many that the police simply didn't care about these home grow operations because they understood the financial desperation of their neighbors. Many believe that without the marijuana growing, the area would have a far worse economic crisis. Did you see or witness any of that in Missouri, that the police seemed to be turning a blind eye, law enforcement seemed to be turning a blind eye because they understood the importance, the necessity of an illegal industry to the people they were trying to serve and protect?
11: Uh, not exactly a blind eye, but um, I could say that in the county where I worked, there was particular interest in focusing mainly, sometimes mostly, on methamphetamine busts. Part of that was because there was encouragement uh, through the structure of policing and enforcement in general that they could get more funding Um if they achieved a certain number of busts as well they received media attention and there was the possibility of a a reality tv show i'm trying to remember the name i think it was meth busters and there was a pilot that was launched and i think maybe an episode it never really got off the ground but this also established some of the notoriety and, and and the very real capacity of law enforcement to do their job, which I think they're doing very difficult work, but it's it's somewhat gratifying to have that recognized B- albeit in a reality TV show, it's not the greatest way to do it um, but also sh- the methamphetamine problem was so diffused and so part of everyday life for residents all over the state that uh, in a sense it I can imagine it would feel good to know that law enforcement is doing its job and publishing its results putting all of the addresses of meth lab bus on their website which is what they did in that county can have a dual effect it can make you feel like yes people are Concerned about this problem, the people who have the capacity to do something about it It could also highlight the problem and make you feel a lot of discomfort It can also stigmatize the place and of course I could also be participating in that Which is why I'm also concerned about the problem of statistics and nomenclature like meth capital and Missouri in general as being particular in in terms of this phenomenon and one thing i'm trying to do with this book and talking to you now is say so this isn't a problem about missouri and it isn't even a problem about meth it's this is one way of talking about and noticing something that's much more widespread and i think you're already on to it with your show in general which is capitalism <laughs> Are we dual yet? Are we dual yet? Are we dual yet? Are we dual yet? Are we dual
2: yet? Are we, too yet? Are
10: we too- What's your next tip? Do you? Um, yeah, I got another one. Um, this is more of a social tip. Okay, more of a sort of a uh, well, I mean, establishing dominance is social, but this is more specifically mm-hmm. tuned into social. Um, try and go in with a gimmick, right? So it's New Year, New You, but mm-hmm. don't. Don't spread your focus too thin, you know. Hone in on one thing that you want to be remembered for or in more likely you're willing to be remembered for, right? Mm-hmm. So when I say pick a gimmick, you want to be the blank kid, right? Sure. You could be the yo-yo kid. You could be the skateboard kid. You could be the sailing kid mm-hmm. if you're of a certain wealth bracket. Sure. Um you know. Uh, I, f- for example, this is this is more going back to high school. But you know what I was? I was the trench coat kid, and everyone, of course. everyone, I was the trench coat and the fedora kid. Uh-huh. Um, because it made me look really cool, um, and a lot of people respected that. They'd see me with my fedora and my trench coat, and they'd be like, "That is." There's a go. There goes Fedora kid, and I knew that was respect, and and that's how I will be remembered by those people forever. And you will be remembered. Yeah. What were, did you have a gimmick in high school? Did you have a gimmick in middle school? Uh, uh, I was I was the kid that uh, I was the kid that always put milk on their pizza when they ate it. It's ar- there's already cheese up. I don't understand the problem. There's already cheese up there. That's made of dairy. What's the problem here? The fact that you're so defensive about this leads me to believe that you had a bad experience with. with no, with- they remembered me. They sure remembered me. I didn't. I lived my. I've been living my best life since 2009. You know, what is what is Dan? What is Danny Rodriguez doing now? He's probably working at fast food. I have a successful radio show. No, that's that. That's fair. That's fair. I. I. You know. Yeah, and that's how you'll be. That is how. You will be remembered forever. And yeah. that's a that's, that's successful milk pizza kit. Are we told yet? 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 Are we, yet? Are we yet?
0: Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trekker, voiceovers by Shanna VanVolt, Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>